with that, let's pray and we'll get into Hebrews. Um, yeah, let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for our church family. Um, uh, I thank you for the work that you're doing in our midst. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for this time that we have to gather with one another to, to, to worship at your feet uh, by studying your scriptures. Father, we ask today that as we uh, navigate this text, r- r- the whole book of Hebrews is, is a, can be a difficult one to navigate. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us. May he illuminate um, the scriptures for us that we would understand what happened historically in context and that we would uh, be able to understand the, the enduring principles that are found in your word. Uh, may it not just be head knowledge, but we pray that you would speak to us, that you would uh, move us along in our walk with you. Uh, we pray that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So a little bit differently today, uh, our, our passage that we're actually going to study is Hebrews 1, verse 5, through Hebrews 2, verse 4. It's, it's a lengthy section, and I'm actually going to start at verse 1, because I want to read it in context. But my assumption is that all of you are like me, and when somebody starts reading something, I start checking out. I start, what's for lunch? What's for this? Because my brain, it sometimes is hard to kind of follow along when somebody else is reading. And today, we're covering a a large section that in its own right can be sort of difficult to follow um, the the sort of the line of thought through the passage. And so before we read it, I want to sort of uh, give an outline to help your minds stay engaged as we read the passage. Uh, So the first four verses of Hebrews in the Greek are one long sentence. It's just, it's one sentence. There's one verb connected to the object. I think I said subject last time. Ah, my English grammar. It's God spoke. And so from this, um, it's the thrust of Hebrews. He starts with, in, in various ways and in, a manifold way in the past God spoke he spoke through prophets he threw, he spoke through a donkey he spoke all sorts of different ways but then the author says but now he's spoken to us in his son and that's the first verse and a half and then from the middle part of verse 2 to the end of verse 4 everything from there amplifies who Jesus is in lofty theological terms, it's a Christology. It's a very deep and rich um, teaching of who is this Jesus that that we worship, that we follow. And at the very end of verse 4, or maybe verse 4 I'll say, having become much better, that much better is a key word throughout the book of Hebrews. It, It occurs 12 times in this letter, The thrust of this letter is that Jesus is greater than everything. And this first much better that he says, he says it's much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So if in verse 2 we read that God has spoken 
to us in his son. He unpacks everything about Jesus for those next three verses. And then in verse four, he says that he is much better than angels. And so from this thought, from verse five all the way down to verse 13, or really all the way down to the end of chapter two, the whole teaching is a compare and contrast between Jesus and angels. And he's making his case that Jesus is greater than angels. Might seem strange to you, but I'll get into that. Now, from verse 5 to verse 13, it'll help your mind if you understand what is happening here. The author of this letter is quoting from the Old Testament. There are seven Old Testament quotes. And so as we read, and I will try, and I may even add a little bit to help you know that it's happening, but you'll see that he says, well, God said this about angels, or God said this about Jesus or, or the Messiah. And then he's going to quote from the Old Testament. So seven quotes between chapter verse 5 down to verse 13. Verse 14 is sort of this transitional verse, sort of gives the summary of what he's saying about angels. All of chapter 1 is just simply teaching. It's, 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 uh, it's doctrine. It's, it's truth that has been revealed about, revealed about uh, God, Jesus, and the angels. And then we get to chapter 2. Verse 1, it's the first of about seven warnings in Hebrews. And so verses 1 through 4 are sort of what I call the so what of the whole point. What point is he making? And so this is one of his points that he's going to serve us. In in light of everything that he's just said in chapter 1, it all leads to this reality, this action, how we are to respond. Okay, that's enough of an introduction. I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 1 now. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, to which of the angels did he ever say, I have been a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And again, God says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, And the heavens are the works of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the words spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, our time is limited here this morning. Uh, There's so much that could be said about this passage. So, Father, I pray that you would give me wisdom as I share. Help me to know what it is um, that I should say in order to keep what you said clear and understandable. Father, I pray that you would give us ears that can hear and hearts that are soft and pliable to your voice. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow in our love and zeal for you. Help us, Lord, not to drift as the warning here warns. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I gave a little bit of an introduction already before the reading. Going back to verse 1. It starts with God spoke. He says, in the past, God spoke in all sorts of ways, but, but now, in these last days, in these present days, God has spoken to us in his Son. From there, the Son is sort of unpacked or described, whom appointed heir over all things, through whom he also made the word, world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. So all of that is one sentence. God is speaking to us through his son. And as he describes his son, it's a mini view of sort of Colossians, the first couple chapters in Colossians, that, that, that Christ is the creator of all things, that he holds all things together, that, that, that he made for purifications of sins. Um, th- there is none greater than Jesus. And then as we enter into verse 4, all of a sudden this first much better, we're told that he's much better that, than the angels, that he's inherited this name. And, and for us, we come to this and it's like, what's he? What? Okay, so he's much better than the angels. No big deal. Let's move along. But then as we move along, we're going to see that the first two chapters of Hebrews, like there, there's no other place in the Bible that, that Hebrews are, there's no other place in the Bible other than Hebrews chapters one and two that describe angels in the way that they're described. 
this is the, the fancy word angelology, that this is where we understand biblically much of what we know about angels. It's like, why is he making such a big point about this? Um, we know that during this window, the silent 400 years, so from the conclusion of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament till basically uh, John the Baptist uh, entering the pages of scriptures, it's referred to as the silent 400 years. God didn't do much. It's, I would argue with myself in that, saying that, but God was silent. Uh, th- there's a number of historical books that we refer to as the apocryphal writings that are sort of history books but not scripture. And we see that during that era, there was a there was a, a rise in sort of worship might be too strong of a word, but um, value that was placed on angels. And it's really not unlike today. There there was a study that was done, a survey, I guess I should say, and it's something like eighty six percent of Americans totally believe in angels. Like there's there's no qualms. Do you believe in angels? Yeah, I believe. Do you believe in God? Mm-mm. Oh, but you believe in angels, but not God. It's really funny. Like to to me, it's funny. I look at this and I'm like, ah, angels aren't really a big deal to me. Like kind of like just I'm just generally speaking. And then when I was talking to Anna the other day about this, she says, Gunner, when I married you, you had so many angel trinkets like all over the place. I'm like what do you mean? And she started naming some of them. I'm like, oh yeah, but not because I bought them. But when you're, you know, a young man and you join the SEAL teams, it's like all of the mothers and grandmothers in your life. I, can't, I had a whole junk drawer of these little angels that people would give me for protection and stuff. And so I had all of these trinket angels. I didn't really think much of them, but, but I did indeed have them when I got married. Um, but their understanding, the Jewish mind then, it, it was larger than that. Um, because they believed that it was the angels that were sort of the, the, the medium that gave Moses the Old Testament, the, the, the law and the prophets, that it, that it came through angels. Um, if you'll turn with me towards the front of the Bible to Acts chapter 7. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, the story of the early church, and then as you're turning there to sort of get your minds uh, around where we are in the the unfolding of the early church. Jesus has now been crucified. He was buried. He rose. He ascended into heaven. Uh, Pentecost came. The early church was commissioned. The church began to grow. As the church began to grow, needs surfaced that the apostles couldn't handle, and so they appointed deacons. And as the deacons began to serve, um, their message became offensive to some. And as we enter into Acts chapter 7, we have the recording of the first martyr of the early church. Stephen, the deacon, is about to be executed for his faith in Christ. And he's very near the end of his very offensive sermon to these guys that were standing there angry with him. We're going to read from verse 51 to 53 to sort of get the context. The, the, the key word or the key phrase is in verse 53. Where I'm not going to go is verse 54. But right when Stephen finishes, you see this like electrical rage within the hearers. They, they, we're told that they pick up stones, they surge with anger, and they just take these big boulders and they drop them and they execute Stephen because what he had said 
was so offensive to them. So here we go, verse 51. He's been, he's been speaking for a long time now. And he says to them, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, who, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who receive the law, the key phrase we're looking at, as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Then they get all angry and they kill him. But he says, you who keep the law to the finest point and you do all this stuff and you, you view it this way because you believe that the angels are the ones that gave it to Moses. Now, not going all the way back to Hebrews, stop after Acts, you'll see Romans and then you'll, I think it goes to Corinthians and then you'll come to go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn to help you remember this. So we're going to the go part. Galatians, and in Galatians chapter 3, I believe, is that what it is? Galatians 3.19. So now we have the Apostle Paul. This is probably one of the Apostle Paul's earliest writings. Everybody challenged his authority. He went to Galatia. They came to Christ, understanding that salvation came uh, uh, by God's grace through their faith. But then after he left, the Judaizers, very similar to what was happening in Hebrews, they came through and they said, no, 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 you need to, to put yourself back under the law and live under the law in addition to this whole faith thing. And so this whole letter is like a, a, a scolding by Paul. But what we're going to look at is verse 19. He says then, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been there's the phrase, ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, we don't need to unpack that whole like confusing sentence. The main thing I want you to see is that Paul the Apostle, probably one of the greatest minds of the New Testament, he, he says, we understand as Jewish people that the, that the scriptures that we have, they came through angels. So now if you turn back to Hebrews, Skipping ahead to where we'll get in chapter 2, verse 2. In this present dialogue at the very end, the author of Hebrews writes, For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. So, so what, I, what we need to see is we, we get into this sort of dialogue about angels. So this isn't like Cupid that they're seeing. The Jewish recipients understood angels to be very highly esteemed. And the author, as he makes his first case for Jesus, he's going for the jugular vein. He, he's hitting there like if you hit your, I don't know why they call it a funny bone because there is nothing funny about it when you, when you hit that thing. It's like he's hitting that nerve on them. So when he says at the end of verse four, having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. See, for us, we just think, oh, no big deal. But for them, this is like, angels are the top of the food chain. Jesus is just a human. And now I'm not saying that this is what the readers hear. These are, these are believers, but they're being sucked back in under Judaism because the temple is still operating. This is written in A.D. 65 to 68. 
the, the, the big temple with all of its stuff, their family, their friends. They're, Jesus is just a man. How can you, de- how can you depart from, with, from which we have to go to that? And so the author of Hebrews is making his case that you might esteem angels very highly, but Jesus is so much higher than the angels. And so we come to verse 5, and I remind you that between verse 5 and 13, there's going to be seven quotes from the Old Testament. There are a couple things that I want to say before we get into this. Um, The first thing that's huge is the author's not talking about his feelings. He's not talking about his experiences. He's not talking about what he's heard from other guys. His, his reasoning and his explanation begins from the scriptures. And I think that there's a subtle lesson to us for how we approach God. It's so easy to start thinking and to be informed outside of what the scripture says. One of the things that over the last 10 years of my being here, that as this church has sort of blossomed, what I've really come to appreciate about this church is, is, is that it's almost funny. There is a huge range of beliefs within our tent. And I'm okay with that. Like, I, like I, 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 I want the main things to be the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And if you're growing in the Word of God, if you're studying, if you're God should convict you and guide you. But in evangelical Christianity, there's just like a big tent. And so you could love and worship Jesus and be over here. And you could love and worship Jesus and be over here. And because you all are here, I'm not giving any four examples because I'm not trying to start a fight here. But it's okay to have deep convictions and love the Lord and be over here. And on that same conviction, you could have somebody over here and they could have just as strong convictions and have sort of a different perspective. And that's okay. You know, like I'll, Ben is not here, so I can throw Ben Howard under the bus. I love Ben. We support him as a missionary. Ben was on staff. He was my associate pastor. We still to this day argue over finer points of theology. We do not see eye to eye on everything. And we will go to blows. Because he's wrong. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> like... <laughs> and he's not here to defend himself. But I still love him and he sees it differently, but it's like within the, the it's okay. But, but in the disagreement, it has to be grounded in the scripture. Now, if you're saying, well, I saw this on TV and, you, and you're like, well, it says it in the scripture. And I say, well, let's go to exactly where it says it in the scripture. And say, well, it's in the Old Testament somewhere because that's always the best thing to say because there's all sorts of stuff buried in the New Te- Old Testament that you just don't. It's like, well, can we read it? Can we find it? Well, I don't exactly know where it is. Oh, I have this friend of mine, his name's Google, and if you Google anything, you can find it. Like, so let's find it. And then let's go there and see the couple words that they quote, but then it's like, well, let's read the context. And it's like, ah, you don't really have a case here because that's not really what's being said. And so the lesson here is that the scripture is the thing, like, it's not what we think, it's not what we feel, it's not what we experience, it's what the word of God has said. This is what God has revealed to us, and so we get in danger. Now, when I was a new Christian, to the point where, I'd say I was, I was a new Christian with low miles. Like I had some, I had some time, but I had low miles. But I got to the point where I started reading the Bible, and I had advanced enough to where I started to realize that in the New Testament, when they capitalized the words, that was an indication that they it was something that was being referenced to the Old Testament. 
And then I advanced a little bit further to where there was a quote from the Old, Te- or the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I thought, oh, I'd like to see what it says in the Old Testament. So then I, I find a little reference on the side of the Bible there, and I'd, want, I'd find the pages that had never been opened in the Old Testament. And I started, like, I'd see the, I'm like, I think that's the quote. And so I'd start reading it, and I'd kind of go back and forth. I'm like, this just isn't saying the same thing. And this is important for us to understand what's happening. During the time of the New Testament, the language that was spoken by the whole world was Koine Greek. Alexander the Great, when he conquered the world, he forced his language upon the world. You had to deal with in Koine Greek. The Hebrews, going back further, I mean, I'm way out of where I'm supposed to be right now. But 586, 722 BC, basically Israel's taken in captivity. They're all scattered. Very few of the Jewish people actually still lived in Israel. They took on the language of the other people. They lost their ability to, to speak Hebrew. We see it in Acts that there's this great split between the Jewish people. There are those who speak Hebrew and there are those that don't speak Hebrew. And so what happened is this book called the Septuagint was created. And what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they're not quoting from the Hebrew translation of the scriptures. They're quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek transition, the translation of the scriptures. The Hebrew or the Old Testament that you have in your Bible is from the Hebrew text. And so that's the variant. It would be like if you opened up the New Living Translation and then pulled up the, the, the you know, the old King Jimmy or James, and and it's like, well, this says totally different. It's because it's like a different language period, and so that's what's happening. We see from his reasoning that the author of this le- this this letter sees Christ all through the Old Testament. It's not like Christ is this new thing that appeared in the New Testament. It, Jesus has been from the beginning. The whole flow of redemptive history, Jesus has been there from the very from the very beginning all the way to Revelation. And the author here sees that. So now, um, as he begins to quote from the Old Testament, we see a lot about angels. I have a couple really good quotes, but I'm going to just skip over those for time's sake. Um, So verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say? So this is a rhetorical question. He he, or it's going to be, a, he, he'd never said this about angels. But he's quoting, most of these quotes come from Psalms. There's one of Second Samuel. I'm not going to reference where they came from. I just don't have time to do that. Use your Bible notes if you really want to go back to Psalm 2, for example. So the first thing he says is, well, who, who are the angels? Which angel did he say this about? And he said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's a quote from the Old Testament, not the New Testament. This isn't the Christmas story. This, this is many years before the Christmas story where there's a passage that says, this is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's okay. That happened to me while preaching once. It's like, it's the worst um, when you're preaching and that your phone goes off. Um, okay, so for which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, I have begotten you? None, none of them. He never said that about angels. Then he says, and again, which of the angels did he say? I can insert that knowing the context. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. None of them. He, did, he didn't say this. So we, we see these two quotes. He says, which of the angels did he say? But to Jesus he did. You're my son, I've begotten you and I am going to be your father. 
when you come into existence, you're incarnate, not in existence, when you, when your incarnation, when you step into human history as a man and also God. Then he goes and he says in verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So not only does he say, this is my son, I am his father. And then when he came into existence, remember we're contrasting Jesus with the angels. He said that about none of the angels. In fact, when Jesus came into existence, he said all of the angels will worship him. So not only is Jesus greater, but the angels actually worship Jesus. They don't submit themselves to to him. I mean, they submit themselves to him. He doesn't submit himself to them. So now the angels were created to worship him. Now we continue. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, so not only do the angels worship Jesus, he goes on to say, and it's going to sound really hard to understand in the New American Standard, it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? So what he says is these guys are basically like a wind and like a fire. And I, I, wind and fire can be very powerful. A, a few years ago, we had like a windstorm in Valley Center. And I remember sitting in my house going, I can't remember if it's the three little piggies, the one like I'm going to blow you, I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff. Is that the three little piggies? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always messing with Anna, like mixing up the stories, so I really actually mixed them up in my head. So I kind of like, this wind is going to decimate our house. We are in so much trouble. And it was scary. And if you're in a huge windstorm, it, it can be a terrifying experience. Angels are not to be messed with. They have power. Huge power. Terrifying. But like every windstorm, it fades away. It's not an indefinite power. We don't need to explain the dangers of fire and the power of fire in Valley Center. We're people who we see somebody throw a cigarette butt out the window, we chase them down and punch them in the face. You're going to set all our house on fire and kill us all. Like It's dangerous. Like We are afraid of fire because we've lived through fires. And so we understand the rage and the terror of a fire like an angel has that power. But every fire goes away. This is just setting up for verse 8, the contrast of Jesus. Now look what he says about Jesus. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter of the scepter of his kingdom. So we're talking about forever and ever. That means Jesus is eternal future, eternal past. He always was. He always has been. He is God. He always existed. Past, present, future. Not angels. Angels were created and they can be done away with. Period. Then he continues his contrast. Verse 10. And of the Son, he says, we can insert, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Going back to verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 1, through whom he made the world. Again, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus was the actual agent that when we read, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, the person of the Godhead that did that creating was Jesus. It's all in Colossians. It's all here. I said it two weeks ago when we did the introduction. It's clear. He is the one who created all things. Then he goes on and he says, they, speaking of the heavens and the earth, all of his works, these things which he created, these beautiful, marvelous, wonderful creations, 
I'm at the time of the year where the vacation carrot is getting like bigger and bigger and bigger, and I can like, like our trip to Lake Tahoe is like right around the corner. I love going up there, seeing the trees, the lake, just the majesty of creation. It's wonderful. Like, I love it. But then what he says about this wonderful, endless creation, he says, and they will all become like an old garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. Like as beautiful and wonderful as this creation is, it'll, it, it'll be like a garment. I remember in 1996, I think that was a year, I was in my platoon and we traveled somewhere. I don't even remember where we traveled to, but it was an Air Force base because I've been making fun of Air Force guys ever since. Sorry if you're in the Air Force. I, uh, I've been making, Air Force, making fun of Air Force guys out of, actually out of jealousy because their bases are amazing. And so I, me and my friend Tom, we were the two junior guys in our platoon. And so we're checking into the, the hotel barracks type thing. It was like a, so everybody checks in. And then we're at the counter, the last ones to go. And the person at the counter says, I'm really sorry. We're totally out of rooms. And I go, oh, man, it gets cold. We're going to be sleeping in the van because nobody's going to let us share their room with them. And then the person's like kind of clicking around the computer and they say, oh, well, which I kind of miss what they said, but I'm pretty sure they said that they have an executive suite. And so we have an executive suite that we'll put you in. It's like, okay, just as long as we have a room. And so like, uh, I'm like, we don't even care. They're like, no, no, you'll be okay with the room. Apparently it was like a presidential suite or something. Like I had no idea. So they give us our key. Tom and I walked to our room. We opened the door and it was like a room that led to like multiple rooms. And we're like running around checking this out. We were supposed to have like a meeting in an hour after we got kind of settled. We run into the bathroom, which was like this whole other room there was a full-blown jacuzzi in there with two TVs and telephones and like and robes and slippers. We stripped down. We hop in the jacuzzi. We're like, this is the best. We can't like, this is awesome. And then we're chilling out of the jacuzzi watching TV. And it dawns on us like, oh, no, we're out of time. The meeting's right now. So what do we do? Like any like proud guy, we get out. We throw in our robes, kick on the slippers. And we walked down to the lobby of this hotel in our robes. I was like 20, so I didn't really, I had no. And they're like, what are you guys wearing? And we're looking around like, you guys don't have a jacuzzi in your room? They're like, no, we don't have a jacuzzi. We don't. Oh, they're like, what do you mean about this? I'm like, you don't want to hear about the TV and the phones and just. And those robes were nice, like really nice. And when we were done, we throwed them up, rolled them up. And as nice as they were today, they're gone. I'm sure they're trash. I'm sure that whole room has been remodeled because everything is breaking down. And as nice as that room was 20 some odd years ago, it's nothing now. And like this world, as great as this world is, it's breaking down and it's going to go away. But there's a but. This great world, the heavens and the earth that Jesus created. But the psalmist, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, he says, but you are the same. Jesus doesn't change. And your years will not come to an end. He is eternal. He is the creator. Angels, on the other hand, will have an end. But to which of the angels, verse 13, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And so this picture that he sort of 
concludes with is that there's the Father in heaven and to the next is another chair. We, we all have these in our families, these chairs. I'll never forget the first time Anna trusted me or I qualified enough to make it out to the ranch, to her grandparents' house. And so I get up to the ranch and I get into the house and I'm the total new guy. Like I think I was engaged to her at that time, but I'm still like very lowest on the pecking order. And I walk into the house and I see the living room and I'm kind of like, okay, where do I want to sit down? I kind of like walk over to the chair. Everybody's looking at me and just shaking their head. That's Grandpa Hilton's chair. It's like, well, he's outside down by the bar. You don't sit in that chair. Okay, well, I'll go over here. I look at that's Grandma Hilton's chair. Okay, well, there's a third chair. I'll go to the third chair. Like, that's Uncle Russell's chair. And so I'm kind of looking around like, can I sit on the floor? They're like, well, yeah, you can sit on the floor, of course. And the couch is there as long as nobody else is using the couch. But if anybody comes in, you're to the floor. Got it. And I kind of see this as the picture in heaven that's being described. Like here in heaven, there's God the Father in a chair and there's another chair. All the angels who are worshiping him are kind of looking at that chair Mm-mm. that's the son's. That's the son's chair. You don't sit there ever. This is powerful. And then he says about angels, sort of his summary statement, like I mentioned in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits set out to render service for the sake of those that will inherit salvation? There's, there's so much to say about this. I'm looking at the time going, I'm running out of time. This is beautiful. Are they, that's angels. Basically, it's a question, but it's an instruction for those of us that don't know anything about angels. We're told that they are ministering spirits. Ministering to who? They were sent out to render service for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. Powerful. That we who have received salvation in Christ, we've received this inheritance. And so from this teaching, all of this is just sort of like head knowledge, doctrine, facts. And the chapters and verses, they're not there in the original language. It's just, I'm thankful to the French guy in the 1500s who put them there, but they are not inspired. And so from here, the author says, for this reason... Well, what reason is this reason? Is it this talk about the angels? And I, I, I really believe that we're going back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This reason. Well, what's this reason? In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. For this reason... Now, if you have any question about who the Son is, we have a whole 13 verses explaining to you in great clarity who Jesus is. For this reason, because God has spoken to us in his Son, who is greater than angels, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. What we have is the word of God. How he reasons up to this point is the word of God. As I reflect on my 10 years here, I am so grateful that you guys are so long-suffering with my teaching. Like I'm looking at the clock right now for the last like year, like since Ben Fredericks was here preaching for his six-week internship, I've been like on, 
I want to get my sermon link down to like 40, 45 minutes and like it just isn't ever happening. Like I fail at, I try. But there's, because the word of God is so important and we, like if we take an hour here to study the word, to worship it, this is the most important, like understanding what God has revealed to us is important. And so I'm grateful for this church. This isn't a school, like this is a church Nobody's ever complained about the length of a message unless they're like, am I making fun of myself and they're adding on to it? Maybe Larry's made fun of me, but not even. Like, I, like, like this is a church that values the teaching of the word of God and I am grateful that the church allows me to cut out so much of my time to focus on the studying of the word of God because this is critical for us to learn and to grow. She says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We need to pay attention. He says, the reason so that we will not drift away from it. This word drift away, it's only used here in the, in the New Testament. It's the picture of a, of a ship that is not anchored and is just letting the, the current take it along. I've been meaning to get our minivan to the shop because if I want to go straight in the minivan, I have to keep the steering wheel like this. The alignment's off. And it's not expensive to get it fixed. I'm not mechanically inclined to do that, so I don't mind paying the $60 or whatever to get it so that I can drive straight like this, but right now it's like this because it drifts to the left. And we all have a propensity to drift to the left or maybe to the right. I don't know. I'm not talking. uh, Our tendency is not to go after God. Our tendency is to drift away from him. And the writer here saying, we have to pay close attention. You need to be in the word of God. That's why being at church on Sundays and studying the scriptures is a a big deal. Fellowshipping, which we'll see, is a huge deal. It's May, whatever month we're May. I don't know how many of you, it's not a raise your hands for a question, started reading the Bible through in a year in January. It's May. We've probably all fallen off the wagon. You can start reading the Bible in May. You don't have to wait till January. And in January, you don't have to start in Genesis. You can just say, hey, for the rest of the year, what I want to do is I want to read Ephesians over and over and over again for the rest of the year. You don't even need to read a whole chapter. If you just read one verse at a time of Ephesians like throughout the year where you're making your way and every day you're in the Word, it's going to change you. It's going to change you. That's why we need to pay closer attention because if we don't pay closer attention to what was said, and that's the scriptures. And I love notice, which I didn't highlight. Notice, what does he say? He doesn't say for this reason, you must pay closer attention to what you have heard so that you don't drift away. No, he says, we. I preach to myself every week. I'm not up here preaching at you guys, hitting you over the head. I stand under the word of God with you all. We are in this. We have a propensity to get off course. That includes me. That's why I'm so committed to say, we got to be in the word. We got to let the word speak to us. Okay. This is the first warning in Hebrews. Then we go into verse two. For if the word spoken through the angels, I've already made the case, I've shown you how the Hebrews view or understand and the scriptures don't seem to negate that that the angels were the agents that basically gave the word to Moses and so he's going to it's an argument reasoning from the lesser to the greater 
And so he says, for if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, if the angels, now remember Jesus is greater than the angels, that's where he's going, but if something lesser than Jesus, the angels, gave the word and it proved to be unalterable, and for every transgression and disobedience, so in the Old Testament, and these are Jewish minds that would have had full belief and understanding that Genesis to Malachi, the word of God, excuse me, And they understood that if they veered from it, the laws in the Old Testament, it very well could have brought human punishment on you or heavenly punishment on you. And this is something that was lesser, that the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So that's the lesser. Then he goes on to say, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, that if we have come to receive the salvation that Jesus died on a cross for us, and as the creator of the world who we read all about Jesus, if the wrath of God was poured out on him that was due us, and they were punished, like, how are we going to escape if we neglect this salvation? It's powerful. So we need to pay super close attention. We need to, to, to pay attention to the word. We need to heed the word in our lives because we're drifters. And now he's going to expand on the testimony. And there's so much that I could say on these. Like literally, I had a whole bunch of chick, like I had not chicken scratch. Well, I mean, it's chicken scratch, but I, it's perfectly legible to me. Uh, I had a whole bunch of stuff because verse 3 the second part of it to four, there's so much here that, that that goes into a lot of theological debates. I'm not sure that I want to open the can of worms of this debate, but at the same time, I don't want to necessarily fly over. And so let's just sort of ease into it and see how on track I can stay. And I know I'm almost out of time, so it's going to keep me on track. So he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. So remember, spoken, we're, we're paying attention to what we've heard. Verse 1, God spoke to us in his son. And he says that he first spoke to us through Jesus. Jesus had a three-year earthly ministry. He spoke, he taught, we just spent... I don't know, like three years in Matthew, we have Jesus' teaching. And so he says that at first it was spoken to us through our Lord, that's Jesus. And it was confirmed, critical, but I don't want to go into the can of worms. It's past tense. It's clear in the past tense. It's, it, it, it's a past tense action. He spoke to us, so the author is still included in this portion that he is one of the people who heard the testimony of Jesus and where we're going to go is to the apostles, but he was not one of them, confirmed to us by those who heard. So it's believed at this point, at this time of writing, whether it was AD 65 or AD 68, all we know is that it was before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. At this point in human history, as the author is writing, 
We believe that all of the apostles are dead now. So he's speaking back to what happened. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. He is not a part of that group. This is the apostles. God also testifying with them, that's the apostles. Then he's going to list three things that are sort of things that authenticated what the apostles said. Both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, I'm not going to get into the huge theological debate here. But with my little chicken brain, I'm going to try to do my best to try to keep the main things the main things. I will start with God is still working today. I absolutely believe that God does miracles and that God intervenes in in miraculous ways. In fact, I would go as far as to say that like the fact that I can stand here and look at you through my eyes and somehow through my eyeballs, whatever your images are, go into my brain and there's a bunch of little like electrocutions or something that happen. Like, I mean, I have them. I just don't know how they work. I just know that they do work. They're not working as well as they used to. And then those little firing of stuff goes into this, like this thing that looks like a bunch of sausage that's rolled up, which we call my brain. And then I'm able to process all of your faces. And the, that's a miracle. I mean, think of it. That's absolutely crazy. I have four children. Like the fact that these little creatures like came like from, like how did that happen? I mean, I'm not asking how that happened. <laughs> I'm, but how does that like, oh, you guys are like, we're going off the way. But like it's a mirror, like it's miraculous to me that after its own kind, things reproduce. It's crazy to me. And, and I've seen it like somebody has cancer. They pray. And sometimes God takes away the cancer. It's it's miracle. Like, I'm not saying God's not moving. But now where I want to go and to sort of step on our toes a little bit is we need to be careful when we're using the term miracles because someone once said that they're called miracles and not regulars for a reason. And and to, to say that even you're praying for cancer and it going away, which is a miracle, I'm not denying that, to liken that to a miracle of the apostolic age is totally different and, and crosses a line. I used to say, it's like using the word love. Like I... Last I was talking with Anna, and I said, well, it's like using I, I love In-N-Out Burgers. And she's like, no, and, I, and that I love her. So it kind of like reduces the word love. And she's like, man, no, I like it, and I love In-N-Out Burgers too. So we can, she's like, but if you were to say you loved hockey and that you loved me, that would really bother me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just really like hockey. I don't really love hockey. And so when we're talking about what happened with the apostles, what we're talking about what happened with Jesus, if you take chronologically the whole that we have in Scripture, it would be very easy for you to think that miracles are just happening like when popcorn starts popping, like they're just everywhere. And they really, 
chronologically, miracles are so far and few between in the Bible. We, we have a, a short window of Jesus' earthly ministry this three years where, of course, all of this popcorn starts going off in his life. And then after he goes, the commissioning of the 12, talking about the church, they have a whole bunch of popcorn. And then it's like when you microwave your popcorn and you have that where it's all popping and then you're like, how long do I take it? When you get the pop, I want a little bit more pop. And you get one more and then you wait too long and then all your popcorns, maybe it's just me that microwaves my popcorn. But I. So what happened during the apostolic age was huge. And the apostle, or not the apostle, the author here is saying we heard testimony of them. We heard testimony of Jesus. We saw testimony of the apostles. And what they said was confirmed to us by these various things. And so we know absolutely that Jesus is greater than the angels. And because God has spoken to us in in his son, we must pay closer attention to the things that have been said to us. And as we close here, just a few thoughts. I've been wrestling with this this week about angels. Angels don't really have high priority in my life. Like I'm not kind of, like all of those angels that I had in a trinket drawer, I'm not using them to make decisions in my life. I don't even have them anymore. Um, but, but the question that's been coming to my mind is, who or what has the greatest influence in your life today? What things have more authority in your life than Jesus does? Think, well, maybe your family, maybe your friends, maybe the media, maybe sports, hobbies. The more I think about it, or at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, the, is I realize that this guy, numero uno, <laughs> there are times in my life, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it's like, I know Jesus says that, but I don't want to do that. And so I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I think that this is the heart of what he's getting at. It's like, no, Jesus has authority, so I don't care. Like, whatever it is that's steering you away from Christ, and he's speaking lovingly to believers. This isn't like he's speaking to non-believers. And if you haven't come to place to trust in Christ, I would highly encourage you to, to, to research him. There's evidence. I, I don't believe it's blind faith. It's overwhelming a case for who Christ is. In fact, there's a book about it, and we'll give you a free one if you would like one. But for those of us who have believed, we need to guard our hearts we need to pay close attention. I'm going to end with a story that came out of a book, Jesus Pure and Simple, but they use from the AOPA. It's a, it's a pilot's association, and it's a blog that they have. And from this study that was done amongst pilots, they make a good spiritual application that I'm going to borrow here. Uh, some time ago, a rash of flying accidents for single-engine planes occurred across North America. When a comprehensive study was conducted of the 44 most recent fatal accidents involving Cyrus aircraft, a few lessons stood out. First, all but one of the accidents listed pilot-related causes. Second, and most importantly, experienced pilots were responsible for the majority of accidents. A few of the accidents were caused by pilots with less than 150 hours of flight time. But over 75% of the accidents were caused by pilots with over 400 hours of flight time. Apparently, these pilots assumed that because they already had a lot of hours under the belts, they could cut corners and get sloppy. 
By contrast, beginning pilots with fewer hours were extremely careful, even painstakingly in their pre-flight routines, meticulously inspecting every rivet of the airplane, just like I did with skydiving in my parachute. That wasn't in there. Um, They did it by the book. The study concluded that pilots who get overconfident and stop pursuing ongoing safety training are four times more likely to have a fatal accident. Totally redefines how I feel about the old pilot walking on the plane. Now I'm like, give me the young whippersnapper that's like a... Then the author goes on to turn to spiritual application, this which is quite good. Sometimes we as Christians are 500 flying hour disciples. Accidents take place because we stop doing it by the book. We stop studying the word of God. We compromise on devotions. We slump on allowing the standards of scripture and the Holy Spirit to inspect every uh, quote unquote rivet in our hearts and lives. We go on day after day, cutting corners, wondering why we lose power on the climbs and we stall. Accidents may often be the consequences of our thinking that we know better. And I think this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He's speaking to Christians who are going off course. So we're going to end. And I want to remind everybody that there's been a a couple of people that, that... are available to pray after the service. So if you need prayer, I should say if you need, but we all need prayer. But come forward and and get prayer after the service if you'd like. Um, Father, we do thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Christ. We thank you that it's faith that we come to him. We understand that. But it's not blind faith. As I've come to investigate this Jesus over the course of my life, I have discovered that there is evidence supporting who he claimed to be. We thank you for the many witnesses of the early church who testified of the things we saw. We thank you for the apostles and how you used them to launch the church, which we are a part of. Father, I pray that you would help us to guard ourselves from drifting. It's so easy to be led astray by this world, by our own hearts, by our flesh, our apathy at times. Father, I pray for those of us who maybe have grown cold in our relationship with you. I pray for those that maybe don't know you as Savior. Pray that you would help them to come to understand who Jesus is. And for those of us who have trusted, I pray, Lord, that you would help our picture of him to align with what the Scripture says about him, that he's all-powerful, almighty, everlasting, Father, help us to live our lives in view of him. We pray that you would build a desire in our hearts for your word, that we would grow to know you more closely, more intimately as we come to know you through studying your word. We ask that you would help us by your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.